Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 89 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 89, Scott and I will be talking about a series of, I guess you could say, uh, quizzing philosophical questions. ideas sort of uh diving into some sort of thing some things that we have discussed either just between the two of us or things that we have discussed on the inside quizzing uh slack channel and we've got a fairly healthy list of things we're probably not going to be able to get through everything but we'll just kind of start off and see how far we can go so the first topic uh which seems fairly simple on its surface but actually has a lot of depth and implications is as follows should you make rules let's say you let, let's say you're on the rules committee or you are uh, either for your district or for internationals or whatever it happens to be and you have the ability to make rules should you make rules solely to prevent bad qms from doing bad things now we should probably before we go too far down the road here, we should we should probably clarify what bad QMs and bad things are. But Scott, do you have any sort of what are your sort of your initial thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I would kind of define a, like a bad thing to be. Um, an example would be not calling a quizzer out of context when the quizzer says something that is clearly out of context. And when I say clearly out of context, that's not a, a, an easily definable thing necessarily. <laughs> Um, but I don't know, how, how should we approach this? Should we, should we say like something that most people would consider to be out of context is, is our standard? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, we could pull up from that a little bit and say like, what are, what are, what are certain bad things that a quiz master can do? Like there's certain things like make bad rulings, right? Like, like, and, and we could say like wrong rulings, right? Certainly a wrong ruling is a bad thing, right? But a wrong ruling is challengeable. Right. So uh, but then, of course, you could then circle back and say, well, if it's a wrong ruling and we have the challenge mechanism in place and the challenge mechanism is, you know, complied with, then you are, in fact, making a rule, a combination of the objective rule that is challengeable plus the ability to challenge are the two rules that, when combined, help prevent that particular bad thing, essentially an objectively bad ruling right so in a sense i think in that example we've sort of already stated we've sort of already said like yeah should you make rules solely to prevent a bad qm from doing bad things well in that case the answer is yes but digging further then it's like well what if what what about certain things that are not quite so clear and objective right so uh you know we have a best practice for quiz masters that they need to speak in a a uh, sort of metronomic tone, a very uh, consistent tone, and be clear and and consistent in their speech, right? Uh, what if a quiz master isn't doing that? Well, do we start creating rules to make it possible to challenge? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe we should get very much more specific about certain rules that would fall into this clause. Right, okay, so... I- I'm identifying three buckets. So one bucket is rules that are currently objective, right? Things like a quizzer must quote a quote question word perfect. And um, you could say a quiz master is doing a bad job if um, they don't apply that standard or misapply it. Um, But as you said, there is a very clear mechanism. Like it's the rule is objectively written. People can challenge. And I don't know that I've really come across a situation where a quiz master 
defied a, a challenge, right? right. <laughs> On something objective like WordPerfect. Um, and so that, those are just kind of the way that they are, and they're great. And maybe the rule was written solely to prevent a bad quiz master from doing a bad thing, but maybe not. Um, I don't think it really matters because the end result is good for everybody. Then there's um, a subjective language in the rulebook, like Quizmaster speaking at a conversational tone or stopping consistently when a jump is made, where it is subjective and there is a way that a Quizmaster can be bad at it, but it's also really, really problematic to challenge, right? Um, and this is the Quizmaster should bucket of actions. And I think that's why in the rulebook rewrite, I believe we moved a lot of the Quizmaster should things to best practices since we deemed them not it's not feasible for them to be up for challenge. Um, and so we're, I think we should ignore that class of things, at least for this discussion, because I think there are other mechanisms to ensure a level of quality that would be good for quizzing. Um, but then, so then that leaves us with the third bucket, which is subjective rules um, that are challengeable, which really are just context, correct and incorrect. Um, because within each of those definitions, there are definitely subjective areas, right? Um, it's probably considered to be objective that if the answer is Peter and the quizzer says Jesus, they are just incorrect, <laughs> and that's very objective. But there are, are lots of um, subjective scenarios that could come up with, you know, did the quizzer say not incorrect? Did the quizzer give enough information to be counted correct? Did the quizzer give enough information to take them out of context? And I think um, within those subjective rulings, there are um, ways that a, a bad quiz master would be worse than a good quiz master um, doing things that would be generally considered wrong or bad. Um, and then the question is, is that undesirable enough that we want to write a rule that makes it impossible for a quiz master to do that? So one example would be a quizzer going out of count, or hmm, let's say a quizzer um, being counted correct. There might be quiz masters that count quizzers correct on much less information than a different quiz master. And so you might write a rule like um, a quizzer must include all global unique words, or a quizzer must include all global two word unique phrases, or a quizzer must include all. Uh, proper nouns. You know, you can pick any sort of thing that is objective that forces the quiz master to consider and would be objective and much more easily open to challenge than something subjective. And so the question is, like, how do we make a decision on... Um, and, like, okay, I'm throwing up bad quiz mastering, doing bad things, um, and it's almost never an intentional thing, Right. It, it, it can be due to lots of things. It could be due from laziness, which is probably the worst kind of bad quiz mastering. But it can also just be due to inexperience. And we are always going to have a range of levels of experience of a quiz master. And I think it is a good thing to not have the job of a quiz master be so incredibly difficult that you have to have a ton of experience to be passable at it, right? And so I think that's that's part of the discussion too is when I say bad quiz master, I just mean like we're not necessarily passing a value judgment on why they're bad or substandard or, or what, but it's just how do we think about writing rules for um, a quiz mastering situation that we want to avoid. Right. Right. 
So I just rambled. Do you have any thoughts on what I've said so far? I don't have any direct thoughts. I mean, for me, the question is still too up in the air, right? So like in general, I mean, there's, there, I, I, I can go through some of the things that I do believe. I think in general, it is good to have where possible objective rules rather than subjective rules. And we can talk about that later as to why. Um, I think there definitely should be anything that is you know, we can label as being objectively wrong uh, that directly supports the the true mission of quizzing, then yeah, I think we should make rules around that, right? Um, not so much to make the life of the quiz master harder, but rather to just make it more clear. I think the, the more objective the rules can be, the actually the easier things are on the quiz master, right? Um, there, there's maybe more things to keep in mind, but there's less subjective discernment that needs to take place on the quiz master's part, which means that the quiz masters will be inherently more fair. A good quiz master wants to be fair uh, across every quiz, across every question, right? Um, and so to provide more objective rules means that it, it is easier for a good quiz master to be gooder, right? In, in the sense. A bad quiz master though, to me, it almost requires intent. In, in a sense. And, and I think laziness is, uh, is intent, right? It, it's almost intent not to have intent to not be lazy, if that makes any sense. Um, but like a bad quiz master to me is somebody who is either lazy is not, is intentionally not putting the best effort that they can, uh, toward rendering objective fair rulings. Somebody who is approaching quiz mastery with an attitude of I'm, I'm smarter than everybody else. Um, therefore I see challenges as uh, a challenge to my authority or a challenge to my intellect or something rather than an opportunity to look for increased accuracy, uh, in the process of quiz mastery. I, th I think that is bad. Right. And so if we define bad quiz masters that way, uh, rather than expanding the definition to include, say, junior quiz masters who are not quite as good in terms of their speaking capability or not quite as good, you know, um, maybe don't know all the rules as well as they should, these sorts of things, right? Um, not through, you know, lack of focus or interest or anything like that. Uh, or, or, or because of laziness, but just because of, you know, inexperience, right? Um, I wouldn't want to put that, those type of quiz masters in the same bucket as bad quiz masters, right? Um, we could say that those quiz masters are maybe not great quiz masters, but I wouldn't want to call them bad per se. They're on the road to being a great quiz master. Um, bad quiz masters to me are more like they, they're, they're lazy, intentionally incompetent, um, intentionally not carefully reading the rules. Um, and maybe not even intentional, maybe intentional isn't part of it, but, uh, some sort of factor thereof. Right. And so then the question is, should we make rules to prevent bad quiz masters if defined that way from acting in a way that is not you know, fair and objective and consistent, uh, across, you know, say all the rooms where there might be good quiz masters or even great quiz masters in other rooms. And my worry is kind of like, well, I think it's okay to create rules to, to prevent bad quiz masters from doing bad things in that context, but only if those rules are 
number one, objective, and number two, don't have unintended consequences. And I think both of those criteria are not easy, right? It's not particularly, well, actually, okay, let me rephrase. I think creating an objective rule versus a subjective rule uh, can be very easy, but if it is easy, it's usually not a good idea. Uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, generally, we tend to say, well, creating an objective rule for this particular situation is hard, therefore we're going to create a subjective rule. Um, I'm not a fan of that, but I'm more a fan of that than creating arbitrary objective rules, because what ends up happening with an arbitrary objective rule is you end up with the, prob the problem of the second kind, which is, you know, uh, the, law, the law of un unintended consequences. We're creating a rule that actually fixes one thing not quite rightly and ends up causing something worse. Right. And I mean, looking at bad quizmasters as, as you've defined them, I'm not sure if there's any rule that you could write to combat that. And I think that that wouldn't, would not be good anyway. Right. It sounds like more of a human conversation kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you can have certain criteria, and I think the Quizmaster shoulds are a very good thing to help in the selection of Quizmasters uh, in terms of like, you know, Quizmasters should be, you know, familiar with the rule book, uh, should be familiar with the scriptural material uh, that, that, that we're quizzing on, should be comfortable in a room, should speak at a clear and even pace and that, that sort of thing. But those things are... Like, I think you can set up objective measurements of each of those particular things, but doing that in the context of an environment that can be challenged, like, like, or let me rephrase, setting up those measurements such that they can be challenged is deeply not going to work, right? Um, I think instead you have to set up these sort of expectations that the meet director or directors or board or whoever it is that that is that is leading or creating or forming a meet in whatever context that happens to be has a set of criteria to look at at the the available quizmasters and say these are the best you know six whatever quizmasters of this group of 10 candidates right uh, and then we're going to pick those six. Unfortunately, sometimes you need six quizmasters and you have five candidates. And so stack ranking them by their capability is, is you know, not going to be a terribly helpful thing. Sure. And I mean, yeah, I think, hmm. <laughs> I think it really just is an uncomfortable conversation kind of situation, you know, because there's a quizmaster I've observed who at times in the last decade was incredible. The, the stopping consistency was there was the same amount of spillover on every single jump and it was sh very short. And then later at different times, um, they couldn't stop, um, before they had completed an entire word, regardless of the number of remaining syllables of that word. <laughs> um, you know, a quiz would jump on re and they would finish remarkable. Um, and it was just like, wow, the, the, the quality has just nosedived and there's no like rule to fix it besides having the very uncomfortable conversation of you're just not that good anymore, you know, and I'm not and, sure what you do. And I think it is an uncomfortable conversation, but I think it's important. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's important to be able to have those conversations and those conversations need to happen, right? A meet director needs to provide the feedback to a quiz master of saying, yeah, your stopping is, is 
getting progressively worse. Maybe it's time to find a different role for you. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, there are a lot of different roles in quizzing. And I think those roles should be, there should be opportunities for people to move roles rather than sort of pigeonholing somebody into saying, oh, well, that this person is a quiz master. And once they, you know, aren't able to be effective anymore uh, at quiz mastery, we're just going to sort of lead them out to pasture. We're going to, but not tell them why. I don't, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a good idea. It seems like, you know, better to say, uh, yeah, your, your stopping consistency is 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 becoming a problem or your diction is becoming a problem or your rulings are becoming increasingly arbitrary or whatever it happens to be and give that person feedback help them maybe get better it may just be a sign of cognitive decline over time right you know if, if somebody i certainly don't think as clearly in my you know late 40s as i did when i was in my late 20s that's absolutely certain i mean i'm i'm uh fortunately uh self-aware enough to realize that yeah that's that's I've, I've definitely suffered some level of cognitive decline certainly when i get to be you know in my 60s or 70s i expect even greater cognitive decline i would much rather speaking personally i would much rather have somebody say yeah hey griffin your quiz mastering isn't as good as it used to be maybe you should let somebody else quiz master now um, I would much rather have that conversation than just sort of be ghosted in, in terms of being invited to Quizmaster. I agree with that. Of course, it's an uncomfortable conversation. So, right. Um, mm -hmm. I've I've been in situations where I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a Quizmaster where I've I've said I think your quiz mastery is starting to flounder and maybe it's time to think about a different role. Um, but I have, no, no, that's not true. I did have one of those conversations, but I've also, I've been in situations where I have, I've had to communicate with program leaders to say, maybe it's time to let other people take a greater role. Uh, maybe your leadership is not the same now as it was in terms of quality, say, you know, 10 years ago, maybe it's time to step aside. Maybe it's time to mentor other people. And those are not easy conversations to have, right? Um, sometimes you have a conversation with somebody like that and it goes well. And of course, you know, they're, the person isn't going to be excited or happy to hear that maybe, maybe they, they're, they're not as quite as good as they think they are. They're, they're not going to be pleased to hear that information. But a, a positive response to that is, is, is to say like, okay, I, I accept your criticism. I'm, I'm accepting the feedback. I'm going to incorporate it and start to make some changes, whatever those changes happen to be. I've also been in situations where I've had those conversations and the reaction has been very negative, um, just sort of, 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 of pure dismissal. Uh, like, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to deny that this is anything that I need to, to respond to or take seriously. And those are unfortunate. And then it's a question of like, well, now we have to kind of take it to the next level. Is it something where we, instead of talking one-on-one, -on -one, we get a, a, a small group of people to three others and we have a conversation? Or is it just something where the leadership just simply quietly no longer asks that person to return as quiz master or, or whatever, whatever the situation might be, right? Um, certainly... I think after providing the feedback, I think it's it's appropriate to no longer invite the person into a leadership role. Um, but I think there's the individuals do deserve to have some kind of feedback rather than just be, you know, ghosted. 
Totally, right? And I mean, I would imagine a large bulk of substandard quiz mastering is due to a lack of knowledge or a lack of effort and not to a lack of ability. Um, I guess it could be lack of ability. But um, And while I think that providing that when providing that feedback feedback you should do so in a in a good manner um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think i think you should be confident in the fact that if someone replies poorly it means that they're valuing their own like ego above quizzing right yeah yeah that's very true and i mean and and there's a lot of reasons why somebody can end up being a poor quiz master i don't want to say bad because I've sort of defined that as intentional to some degree or another, but there are a lot of reasons for poor quiz mastery and it can be everything from, you know, inexperience. Um, sometimes you just need more quizzes under your belt before you're comfortable and relaxed and, and, you know, get to a higher standard, right? That, that, that's just a normal process of becoming better is just more experience. It can also be that, you know, maybe you've been doing it for a number of years and you're kind of falling into a rut and you need to take a break from it for a couple of years and then come back to it and you'll be as good as you used to be. Or it could be the whole, you know, the age-based cognitive decline kind of thing. It could also just be at any level, it could be sleep deprivation. I mean, you know, I, I, I'll admit, like, there are times when I quiz master and I'm super tired and I haven't had enough coffee and I'm, I feel totally disconnected and I have, I don't think I've received any construct, you know, constructive criticism on feedback, but I, I feel like I should like like i feel i i feel there have definitely been quizzes where i have not presented my a game and it's been due to a lack of caffeine or or more likely a lack of good sleep the night before or some you know other sorts of factors that all play into it right so this is not to say that a poor quiz master is labeled a poor quiz master indefinitely, right? It, it can be a transient issue like, you know, sleep, caffeine, whatever. It can, it can be an inexperience issue. It can be a cognitive decline issue. It could be a number of different factors, right? Um, the feedback loop definitely needs to be there. It's probably not best to have that be a challenge or a po protest sort of environment. Uh, but rather be more kind of meet director, meet council leadership group, you know, kind of thing. But ideally, it's really hard to even do that as a meet director, right? So if you're a meet director uh, at a particular meet, let's say you have six rooms, you've got six quiz masters, you've got, well, you've got, uh, you know, a lot more than that, because you're talking about, you know, six quiz masters, potentially six answer judges, uh, six uh, scorekeepers, and then you've got your statisticians and so forth. And so putting all of that together, you've got a lot of folks that you're overseeing, a lot of sort of moving parts, and oftentimes you're dealing with logistical things during a meet, uh, and it's really hard to get a fair understanding of how each quiz master is doing um unless a quiz master is you know seriously uh having issues you generally aren't going to have a lot of of good data and it's really hard to you know be able to hold all of your officials equally accountable to excellence in in that sort of situation so i don't know i think there needs to be sort of multiple levels of feedback right um 
having quizzers talk to their coaches, talk to the quiz master, coaches talking to the quiz master, coaches and quizzers talking to the meet directors and so forth. And the meet directors talking to their officials and, you know, constant feedback to encourage each other for, you know, ever higher levels of quality. Right. And I think in my experience, it's pretty clear what type, like, hmm, I don't know how to say this. Like watching a quiz master, especially new quiz masters, the ways that they were that they needed to improve were very clear but expected, right? They were figuring out their pacing around reading questions and um, like the stopping. And so there was there's always inconsistency, but you can tell that they are figuring it out and like just kind of trialing things. Um, and then the other side of it is inexperienced quiz masters will be pretty slow to make rulings because um, they want to get it right. Um, and, but the thing is to me, making an incorrect ruling, even an objectively incorrect one, isn't that bad because the option for challenging exists. So to me, bad quiz mastering is really around like if your pacing is consistently bad or if you're taking forever to rule, but I'm fine with those things when you're inexperienced, you know? And then once I know that someone has hit a level of quality, it it becomes painfully obvious when that quality declines (laughs) because you're like, you can do this and you're just not doing it anymore. And that's definitely more of the um, lazy and poor quiz mastering as you defined it, you know? It, 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 it usually is that way, but it can also be based on some of those other things that I talked about, right? It, it could be um, a measure of cognitive decline. It could be a measure of sleep deprivation. It could be a measure of, you know, feeling sick, right? Uh, somebody has a cold a week before a meet, they're getting over it, they feel better, they're no longer contagious, they they no longer have symptoms. Uh, and so they're like, yeah, I'm healthy to Quizmaster to meet. Um, I'm not going to put anybody at risk of, of catching anything. I feel, you know, confident and good about that. But they're, you know, cognitively at 80% of where they would be. And it turns out that that loss of 20% actually makes a noticeable difference in their quiz mastering. Um, you know, that's a transitory issue. It's not something that necessarily would prevent them from quiz mastering again, but I think they definitely need to be told like, Hey, you know, I've kind of noticed this particular meet. Uh, you're not quite on your a game, you know, as you have been in the past. And I don't know why, but I'm just giving you this feedback. And what's useful for in receiving that feedback is the quiz master can then evaluate and say, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? And then they can look back and say, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm maybe at 80% because of the cold that I had a week or two ago. Um, Or they could say, oh yeah, I didn't get very good sleep last night or whatever it happens to be. And they can take corrective action on it in the future. They can say, you know, hey, you know, uh, I this it, I got sick a week before this upcoming meet. It turns out I'm probably not an ideal quiz master and maybe I shouldn't, you know, I should talk to the meet director and see if there's a sub and I can be an answer judge or something for that particular meet instead. Or uh, I can make an evaluation of saying, yeah, when I get six hours of sleep instead of eight, it turns out I am not a very good quiz master. So I need to, you know, try even harder to make sure that I get eight hours of sleep before, you know, quiz mastering or something like that. Right. I think that feedback is is incredibly useful for you know, quiz masters. And so th- that's, that's why that, that I have that distinction between bad and poor, right? The poor quiz master will accept the feedback and 
take corrective action, whatever that might be, the bad quiz master will reject that uh, feedback or will accept the feedback but not take any corrective action. Totally. And another thing I remember from when I was district coordinator of PNW is I also quiz mastered. And as a result, I couldn't ever watch anyone else quiz master. And so whenever you get feedback from, say, a coach about this quiz master did this bad thing, it's kind of like, well, it's hearsay until I can verify it. Right. Um, which, me, like, ideally in a district, the district coordinator is not also a quiz master. And also, ideally, you have more possible quiz masters than rooms that you have so that quiz masters can watch each other and rotate some um, because I think that observation just helps everybody. Yeah, absolutely, right? And this also sort of raises the reason why I know in, you know, Christian circles, we tend to not like to provide constructive criticism, uh, at least in American, uh, you know, U.S. and Canadian uh, circles, we tend to want to avoid uh, providing constructive criticism because we somehow think that that it's, you know, unchristian to do so. I think that's a terribly wrongheaded belief. I think the we want constructive criticism. It's the manner in which you provide the feedback that makes it, I think, Christian or unchristian, not prov- not the idea of providing feedback or not, right? I would much rather have multiple points of feedback. And to, and to your point, exactly, right? If you happen to be in a situation where, as a meet director, you are quiz mastering, or you're not quiz mastering, but you've got a thousand other things that you're dealing with, and you can't have a good viewing of every quiz master in every quiz if one coach tells you yeah you know quiz master number three had a you know an issue with their pacing or something well okay that's a data point you can take that and 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 accept that feedback and maybe talk to the quiz master but there's not that much you can do about it because you could go and talk to the quiz master and say well i got one coach who said this one thing right um, and maybe the quiz master's like, okay, cool. I can, I can see that. Or maybe they're like, that's interesting. I don't see it, but it's hard to get a gauge off one data point. But if you've got say three or four, uh, coaches all saying, yeah, you know, quiz master number three has a problem with stopping on time or quiz master number three has a problem with, you know, how they're interpreting certain parts of the rule book or something like that. When you have multiple uh, uh, bits of feedback, then you can actually go and talk to the quiz master and say, okay, I'm hearing a consistent pattern of X and you should know about it and let's take corrective action about it, right? That becomes useful and and, and actionable feedback uh, that you can do something about um, on, on every level, not just the quiz master, but, but the meet director and everybody else, right? So, I would encourage everyone, you know, coaches definitely talk to your meet directors, talk to your quiz masters, uh, quizzers talk to your quiz masters, quizzers talk to your coaches, quizzers talk to your meet directors, like, like provide the feedback loops at every level and at every stage and make that, you know, a significant, a significant amount of communication that's going back and forth at every different level, because ultimately you know, big picture, we need to sort of separate ourselves from the idea that I am the quality of my quiz mastery. Um, certainly I want the quality of my quiz mastery, quiz mastery to be as high as I can make it, but the quality of who I am as a person is not the quality of my quiz mastery. Right. Um, and so 
in separating out the quality of my work from who I am, it makes me far more likely that I will honestly accept and clearly accept uh, constructive criticism when it comes. Right. Well, so did we answer the question or did we talk about a lot of good things that don't really answer the question? I'm not really sure, but I think it was interesting and useful regardless. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think in general, it's 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 great to provide, it's great to write rules that are objective, that, that have the ability to be challenged uh, or can be used as the basis of a challenge. I think there are way too many things that bad or poor quiz masters do that can't be prevented by rules and in fact need to be handled by the feedback loop system. But yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. Um, Scott, do you want to take the lead on this one? Yep. So we had a discussion in the Slack group about two to three word unique phrases. So as a refresher for an inter interrogative question, let's just take interrogative questions. Um, uh, for an interrogative question to be ex to be valid, there has to be a completed one, two, or three word unique phrase in the first five words of the question. And so we were having a uh, discussion about this, right? Um, I think that um, that's not really a very helpful rule. Um, I know that Jeremy would rather ha have it be written a little bit differently. Um, he would rather it say a question has to be unique in the first five words, but not that it has to contain specifically a one, two, or three word unique phrase. Um, and then we were chatting with Reagan uh, in the Slack group who thinks that it is a very good rule because it provides um, good expectations to a quizzer about how long it will take a question to be um, unique, or at least um, the quizzer has some general expectation that it won't it won't be forever. Right. And so when I brought up the fact that words don't equal syllables or like words have differing amounts of syllables, Reagan was like, oh, totally, totally. I agree. And so maybe it's better to have the definition be syllables. But in in any sense, like he wanted there to be some definition in the rule book that um, gives an expectation to the quizzer of the, the question will be unique within at least this time frame at the beginning of a question, right? And so we were talking about, is it good to provide this expectation to a quizzer? Um, what should be, like, how much do we consider what question writers are doing? Like, I don't think we should consider the needs of question writers above the needs of quizzers. But one argument that both Jeremy and I bring up is that um, to verify that a interrogative question is valid, you have to do seven searches, right? Um, you have to and that's in addition to eyeballing the five words for a colored unique word. If you don't have reference material with colored unique words, then you need to do 12 searches, right? You need to search each of the five words for a unique word. And then for the two word phrases, you have to search words one to two, two to three, three to four, four to five. And then for the three word phrases, you have to search words one, two, three, two, three, four, and three, four, five. So that's up to 12 searches to verify that a question is valid. And sure, technology can help with that but it is still an onerous thing. And so the question is, do we think that the current um, rule book wording on validity for an, an interrogative question is useful as it is written? And so some arguments for and against. Um, one argument is that, well, if we don't have this, then theoretically a question could not be unique until word 15 or syllable 30 or something you know, very, very long like that. Um, and 
my counter argument is that if you look at any question set and you looked at how long it takes a question to become unique, um, it's almost always within, say, eight syllables or four or five words. And the, the number that aren't unique yet is like a half percent or one percent or something tiny. And when you look at meets, most in most quizzes, interrogatives are jumped on, not on recognition. And so if you're jumping on them in the four to six or five to seven syllable range, then it doesn't matter if 1% of them aren't, aren't unique within eight syllables versus 1% of them aren't unique within 80 syllables, right? Because st- it's still just, it's after I'm going to jump anyway. And so I'm, I have to guess if I, if I get stuck with one of those jumps. But I just, I don't see the downside necessarily. And to add to that, as a question writer, like I'm not trying to find questions that aren't unique for that long. I'm just trying to write well-worded questions. And it would be awesome if I come across a question that is well-worded, not awkward, test the material well, that I don't have to do these up to 12 searches to, to verify that it's valid. So I threw out a lot of stuff. I don't know how structured it was. Hit me with your thoughts. Well, it turns out, I think I disagree with both Jeremy and Reagan, um, which is probably a great indicator that I'm wrong, um, but I'm just going to double down on my wrongness anyway. I'm not sure I see the point of having a, you know, the interrogative has to be key within a certain number of words or syllables at all. Like, obviously, the interrogative needs to be key before the end of the interrogative, Um, or by the time you get to the interrogative word, if the interrogative is at the end. But in other words, the question itself of an interrogative must be unique. Otherwise, it becomes a reference question, right? Mm -hmm. But apart from that stipulation, I don't see the point of having a two or three word uh, unique, uh, or one, two, or well, I guess if it's a one word unique phrase, it would be a unique word, which would make things unique ahead of time. But I don't see the point of requiring either a unique word or a two or three word unique phrase within the first any uh, words. Um, I don't, I don't know that that's, the only difference I can see of that existing is that it does make recognition a little bit easier, right? If you have a unique word or, or a two or three word unique phrase within the first five words, let's say, or actually forget the first five words at all in the question, um, it makes it a little bit more easily recognizable and discernible than if you don't have that at all. But again, I don't know that that's such a big deal. The number of questions that would be written that are valid interrogative questions, assume it, let's say, let's say as a hypothetical, let's say you get rid of the five word, uh, unique requirement and you got rid of the unique word or phrase within the question entirely requirement, forget even just the first five words, right? Um, the, what would that do to interrogatives? How many additional interrogatives would exist in a question set that are valid and not terrible questions, uh, that would otherwise be filtered by these, you know, two particular rules. I think the, the number of them is like you said, it's like minuscule way below 1%. Um, and I don't know that, so it, as a, in a sense, we, you know, we were talking about umbrage rules or umbrage levels that we take with rules. My umbrage level of this is extraordinarily low because I don't think it makes that big of a difference. But in terms of, I, I, in other words, I, I don't think having 
these two filters in place make a tremendous amount of difference. Ergo, I don't particularly mind having these two filters in place, but in terms of simplicity, it would be totally cool with me. And I would generally be in favor of removing the filters because I think it makes uh, things a little bit simpler and easier. Right. So I, I definitely agree with you. I think that if you remove both of these filters, the average time to uniqueness among interrogative questions would get longer. But I think it would get longer by like 0.05 syllables on average or something just minuscule because I'd be hard pressed to find 50 interrogatives that I want to write that I think are good that um, would now be allowed um, now that these two filters are gone. You know, well, 50, I don't even think I could find 10. Right. And that could be as well. Right. But I'm just, I'm just throwing it out as like a number. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. 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 It would be an incredibly small number. Right. I don't want to say like it's five and only five and will always only be five. But like, even if it's 50, like most question sets are going to have at least a thousand interrogatives, if not closer to 2000. Um, And yeah, I just think the, the downside is almost zero. And I just, I think it's it would be nice to remove complexity from the rule book, which um, would definitely be better for question writers. But I think it would just be better for everyone in general if these things don't exist. Um, and to hit another thing, so the way that the rule book is written, a two or three word unique phrase is a phrase that only occurs once in the material that way, right? Now, when I quizzed, I would write my own interrogative questions list. And when I determined how fast a a specific question became key, I didn't compare how it started to the entire material. I only compared it to my list of written interrogative questions. Because if, um, what's what's a phrase? At dawn on, right? If if that phrase occurs twice in the material, but I think there's one place where it works as an interrogative question and the other place it just doesn't, well, then to me, this is, this is, key or unique on syllable zero um, or syllable one. Um, And so as a quizzer, when I'm preparing, I only compare questions to to written questions of the same type and not every possible phrase that exists in the material. And so I think while it is unfeasible to write a rule based off of all other written questions of this type, because you never know what that finite list is going to be, I think knowing that that is actually what matters to a quizzer, um, these questions are actually unique and knowable far faster than um, you would think based on where is there a completed two to three word unique phrase. And in addition to that, that's also why jump marks um, for people that write jump marks into questions, that's why they're so terrible because it doesn't mean almost anything like it. I mean, I guess, you know, that at this point in the question, these words only exist once, but I don't know. To me, it's just such a, a poor thing for determining actual question difficulty or actual key, point of keyness, especially on like a finish the verse. Um, Cause that's coming from such a limited set. Um, I just, I feel like I'm rambling on all of these, but I think it's, I think it's useful to draw that distinction between uniqueness when compared to every word and phrase in the material and uniqueness when compared to written questions of this type. 
Yeah. I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton's quote about uh, fences or his writing about old fences, and I'm going to totally butcher this, so don't quote me trying to quote G.K. Chesterton here. But the idea of, um, you know, he's, he's this English writer. Uh, well, he was an English many things, but you know, for the purposes of what we're talking about here, he was an English writer who basically was talking about, you know, you're walking along an old road in the middle of some who knows where, you know, country English road kind of thing. And you come upon an old fence and you wonder, uh, that fence seems strange. Maybe we should get rid of this fence. And he cautioned that, well, before you make alterations to this fence, either getting rid of it or, you know, putting a gate into it or whatever, you should try to understand why the fence was, you know, constructed in the first place. And so, you know, in terms of this sort of particular situation, it, I think it would be useful to try, and we probably won't be successful, we can hypothesize the reasons why these sorts of rules exist. And I think they may exist, or and, and I have no evidence to this, I'm just sort of making this up here, but I hypothesize that these rules exist because quizzing has been around for a very long time. Quizzing has been around since, well, I started quizzing in 1995, and quizzing had been around a lot longer than that. Uh, so, uh, you know, quizzing was a venerable sport, you know, by the time I joined. So let's say it had been around for a good 10 years, maybe longer uh, before that, maybe a lot longer before that. So, you know, if I joined in 95, let's kind of go back in time to, let's say, 1984. And why am I picking 1984? Well, the reason I'm picking 1984 as a date is because most folks who are listening to this podcast right now uh, are probably, based on the stats that I have, listening to this podcast on their smart devices, like a smartphone, right? And it turns out that an average smartphone right now that you are listening to this podcast on right now, probably, let's say, uh, your smartphone has more computational power in it than every computer on planet Earth in 1984, right? Let that sink in, right? Your smart device, your smartphone has more computational power than every computer on planet Earth in 1984, right? So by the time these quizzing rules are developed, right, this idea of you're talking about seven searches or 12 searches or that kind of thing, imagine doing that by hand, right? That's incredibly difficult in terms of, of ensuring that an interrogative is valid as an interrogative versus needing to be, let's say, like a chapter reference or a chapter verse reference or, some, or something like that, right? Um, being able to have a pre-generated list of globally unique words and globally unique two to three word unique phrases and then saying those have to exist, at least one of those has to exist within the first five words, makes ensuring that the interrogative is valid from a global perspective, right, um, versus being a, a reference question or needing to be a reference question, makes that possible in a low-tech universe, right? But now that we have a high-tech universe, uh, it's incredibly easy uh, technologically to ensure that your interrogative is a valid interrogative versus being a, uh, a reference question in absence of these two rules. Now, I'm totally hypothesizing that this is why these two rules exist, but it seems to me plausible that this could be a reason. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And in the same vein, me saying that these seven or 12 searches, well, that could also just be rendered null and void by technology, right? Just say among these first five words, the question is, is it unique? You know, like, um, does it, does it meet the requirements? That's also fairly trivial technologically speaking. So, I mean, um, and I, I think it could also the rule could also exist to combat bad question writing, right? People who would find a question that is just not unique for a really long time and say, "Haha, it's you know it's valid." Um, but I mean, your argument that this was written potentially from the beginning of Bible quizzing for logistical reasons would make a lot of sense. Yeah, potentially, and I mean, and this kind of goes back to our previous question, right? Should we make rules solely to prevent bad question writers from writing bad questions? And it's like, well, I, I think there are certain objective things that we can do in in some cases, but there's a, an awful lot that can't be prevented with rules, right? And I would much rather have a series of best practices around, like, these are, these are all legal questions uh, these 10 questions are all legal, but only four of them are good, right? These other six are, are not very good, and three of those six are terrible, and here's why, right? Um, and getting question writers aware of that and working to aim in that direction, I think, is 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 a much better way than trying to come up with rules that kind of almost seem artificial uh, in their... I mean, their objective, which makes me happy... Uh, but they're arbitrary, which makes me not happy. Right. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Do we want to, are you good on this one? Do you want to go on to the next one? Yeah. Shall I lead it off? Yeah, go for it. So I'm trying to remember the origins of this, but the question is, can you define an optimal range of question difficulty? And the four buckets are across types. So do we think that there is an optimal range of question difficulty from very easiest to very hardest when considering all possible questions? Um, do we think that there is an optimal range of question difficulty within types? Um, and it might be different for each type, right? Do we think that there's an optimal range of question difficulty when considering just the total content in the question and answer and not something like how fast it takes the question to become unique or do you have to know references or anything like that? It's just what is the word count or character count in the question and the answer. And then the fourth bucket for an, a potential optimal range of question difficulty is considering potential jump speed, which basically would be saying um, how fast a question takes to become unique or key is all that we care about and not how much required content there is in the question and answer. Do you have any initial thoughts about is there an optimal range of question difficulty for any of these types or for one versus another. So when you say optimal range, are we saying that say given a particular question type, let's say, uh, you know, I'll just pick a chapter reference. Well, let's pick a multiple answer. I don't know. We'll just pick one. Um, so given a multiple answer question type, the optimal range of question difficulty, are we saying that that is one I mean, I guess we're saying range, therefore we're, specific, we're, we're specifically saying that there is something of a bell curve for difficulty within that particular type or set of types or total content or jumping speed, right? Right. Hmm. Well, I think there is an optimal range, but I don't know if I'm, I'm struggling to figure out how to define it. Sort of maybe, maybe I'll take a step back and sort of say certain things that I believe and maybe we can drill into 
what this question is trying to evoke a little bit deeper, but I generally like to have a wide range of question difficulty across both types and speeds. And, well, and, and it's not like I want to optimize for speed one way or the other, but rather I think speed optimizes based on the competition. Uh, but I definitely want to see a question set that has a wide range of question difficulty across all of the question types as much as possible, right? Certainly, you know, a quote question is going to be harder on average uh, than an interrogative, uh, and that's totally fine, and that's reasonable, and that's good, right? Um, but within each particular type, I want to see wide ranges of question difficulty, and the reason for that is I want to provide two things simultaneously that are somewhat contradictory. I want to provide the opportunity for uh, early quizzers, rookie quizzers, or or uh, quizzers with, with not as much experience or skills. I want to provide them the opportunity of getting questions. I also want to provide the opportunity for senior uh, level, and I don't mean that by age or, or, or grade or anything, but let's, let's call it more experienced, more upper tier quizzers. I want to provide them ample opportunities to distinguish themselves from each other, right? So I need both easier questions for one group of quizzers and I need harder questions for another group of quizzers. So I need both of those things, which means I need a wide range. Yeah, and so I, th I think in general, I don't, I think there is not an optimal range of question difficulty for any of these because I think there are many goals that we are trying to satisfy in Bible quizzing. And so um, I don't think there's optimal across the board. I think there might be specific contexts that there is an optimal, right? So take generally inexperienced quizzers uh, to start off. Well, amount of, con of required content is going to be far more difficult for them than how long a question takes to become unique. Uh, because they're generally never going to be jumping at two or three syllables. So a question that isn't unique until six doesn't really matter because that's when they're jumping anyway. Um, but a question that has two words in the answer versus 20 is gonna is a, a massively different level of difficulty for that type of quizzer. Now, go to the other extreme, say internationals. The amount of content in the question and answer is almost a non-factor right? Um, but a question that takes four syllables to become unique versus two and a half is tremendously more difficult because everyone's jumping at one and a half to two and a half <laughs> on pretty much every single question type. And so we see there that what the components of what makes something difficult for different types of quizzers can completely change. And so that's why I think that there needs to be a big range. I do think that I wouldn't want question difficulty to be crazily skewed towards the easy because um well now i'm forced to articulate why basically it doesn't it doesn't give you the opportunity as an upper level quizzer to distinguish yourself i guess that's it right if everything is unique within two syllables or three syllables then you just the i guess the surface that you have to distinguish yourself within is really, really small versus if the range is much larger, um, you have more of an ability to distinguish um, what you know. So, um, but I mean, if you take a finish the verse, I, I would hesitate to say like, yeah, the optimal range of question difficulty is unique within 
um, one and a half syllables on the low end and seven syllables on the high end and a word count of between 12 and um, 34. Like, I don't, I don't think any such definition necessarily exists for um, question difficulty. Right. Yep, I agree. I guess that one was a lot simpler. But I think I, th- I would be really interested in what other people's thoughts are, right? Um, do you think that a specific kind of question difficulty is really good or really bad? Um, and you can definitely limit it to a specific um, range of quizzer. Like, I know... And I, I definitely agree with Jeremy on this. He thinks that for a meet like internationals, having something like a finish these three verses or quote these three verses um, would be a beneficial addition in that it more greatly prioritizes material knowledge over um, how fast does something become unique. Um, whereas now, for most question types of internationals, the total content required is short enough that the majority of quizzers would get it right if given something unique. And so the the whole point of the competition is like, can I jump on something that is unique? Whereas Jeremy would like there to be a few more questions where it's less about, um, can I jump on something that's unique? It's given something that's unique, do I know the material well enough to get it right? Which requires increasing the amount of required material. Because currently, for almost all questions, um, the amount of required material is small enough that most quizzers and internationals would just get it right. Um, and so I think there are definitely specific scenarios where you might want to skew a certain way. I mean, another example would be CMD. I believe in some of their divisions, they limit all questions to be written on the club verses, right? And so that's absolutely limiting the upper range of question difficulty, but it's for a very specific and beneficial reason. Um, but I, I would be interested if people have thoughts about an optimal range of question difficulty. And this this kind of does lead from our discussion on two to three word unique phrases, right? Does the fact that there might be um, a question, an interrogative question that isn't unique until syllable 18 and word eight, do we think that is bad for some reason, right? Yeah, totally. Well, I definitely have thoughts about Jeremy's uh, idea. I really like the idea of a quote three verses or, you know, finish three verses, uh, you know, questions being added. I don't want to add them just for IBQ. I would love to add them to the district level as well. I don't like the idea of having rules that are one way at one level and a different way at a different level. I think quizzers modulate quite well. And so it's, you know, we were talking about this in the Inside Quizzing Slack channel uh, earlier today. You know, take two examples, uh, the game of chess and baseball, right? Uh, I have no idea if that's a, those are the best examples, but th- those are two examples. Uh, the rules of chess are the rules of chess. The rules of baseball are the rules of baseball. Uh, you know, if you play a pickup game in, you know, a neighborhood park of baseball versus you're playing in Yankee Stadium or something like that, the rules are the same, but in one, you know, if you're a, if you're a, you know, first time baseball player, uh, in one context, you're going to do okay. And in another context, you'll be utterly destroyed, right? It's the competition that makes it harder, uh, and more interesting at the Yankee level than at the basic level, right? Chess is the same way, right? Um, you know, when I taught my daughter chess, I didn't teach her, you know, easy chess. I taught her chess chess 
And, you know, that doesn't mean that she can go and suddenly be competitive at an international tournament or something like that. It means that, you know, she can play basic chess. And as she gets better, she becomes more competitive. And the nature of the tournaments becoming harder as she goes higher in levels is what modulates uh, that sort of component. We're not changing the rules because we want to make the rules harder as somebody gets more advanced in their particular levels. So I like the idea of the, you know, quote three verses, quote, uh, or finish three verses. Uh, at the EBQ level, I'd love to see that at all levels and understanding that yeah, you know, in certain competitions, those questions are probably not going to be jumped on. They're probably not going to be answered. But I mean, we see that already, right? We see quizzes where, you know, certain con quizzes or certain, you know, low level quizzes where it's like, you know, a quote question comes up and, you know, everybody sits back and it's a no jump. And this is fine. This is not a big deal. Uh, you know, and, and certainly those are not no jumped at internationals and the, the quizzing competition modulates that wherever it needs to be modulated on automatically. Right. So anyway, this is, you know, a much bigger topic. We should probably save that for another time, but does that make sense? It does. But I think the difference here is that we're, we're already basically at the limit of how much increased competition can change the difficulty of question types at internationals. Like we're, we're, we've reached a constraint. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I mean, the thing is, if it's good to add that particular question type or types at internationals, which I agree uh, with Jeremy, I think it would be a good thing. I think it's also a good thing to add that at the district level. I don't think it does any harm. Sure. It, it may not do any harm at the district level. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, and on that bombshell, we are a little bit over on time, so we should probably uh, call it quits here. And we have a couple of other topics, too, that we'll get to probably next episode or so forth. But I want to thank everybody for listening. We definitely want to hear from you if you have any particular feedback, uh, good or bad or disagreement. But if you have a disagreement, we really, really, really want to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside quizzing and uh you should join the bible quizzing slack forum uh inside quizzing wherein we can have all kinds of and do actually have all kinds of conversations that usually spur topics for future episodes and with that i will say thank you all for listening and thank you scott thanks everyone thanks griffin mm -hmm.